Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 50, through chapter 24, verse 12. Please read along with me in your Bibles or your Scripture sheet or the Pew Bibles. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men standing by them stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's return to the scripture that we read with Bill a few moments ago from Luke 23 and Luke 24. We're staying in God's supporting Luke. If you're visiting, we have been for the last over two years now uh, looking in the gospel, studying the gospel according to Luke, line by line, verse by verse, scene by scene. And But we've leaped ahead just a couple of chapters. Uh, and uh, we'll go back next week and return to where we were in the gospel according to Luke. If you need a bulletin or a scripture sheet, just raise your hand. One of the deacons will get it to you. We didn't get all the scripture sheets out, I'm quite sure, but if you just, okay, we're good. Presbyterians don't raise their hands very easy. Jay went out the back door just a moment ago, but you need to pat him on the back and say, thank you. I do not know many pianists. I don't know any pianist that would attempt to do what he's done today. He's had a a serious malady this week with his arm and hand, started last Sunday, and he pretty much played one-handed today. Uh, So thank you, Jay, for for, uh, sticking in there and, and, and keeping your head up. That took a lot of effort on his part. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, we have prayed our prayers to you. We've sung these wonderful hymns in adoration and praise. We've given you your tithes and our offerings. And now, Father, we wait before you for you to speak to us. John Sartell cannot speak so that it will make any difference in our lives. No one who stands behind this desk can speak so that it will change us from the inside out. And Father, we've heard you speak in this room. and We've been changed. That change continues each week as your word comes to our lives in power and changes the way we look at the world around us. It changes what we hear, changes the way we think, changes the way we love, changes the way we hope. So, Father, this morning, speak to us. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Speak to us, Father. Change us. Maybe some of us for the first time. Thank you. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. A dark and hopeless Saturday. Joseph of Arimathea is an enigma to me. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, made up of 70 of the most significant men of Israel. Yet he did not agree with their judgment against Jesus. Somewhere along the way, Joseph had become a follower of Jesus, but he kept it secret. John, in his gospel, wrote that Joseph feared his friends in the Sanhedrin. In the 38th verse of John 19, John said this, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked, for, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Joseph had lived three years in fear of being discovered. Yet when Jesus died, when it seemed to be over, when the disciples had forsaken, even the disciples had forsaken Jesus, when the claims of Jesus about being the Messiah just seemed to be false, that was when Joseph stepped forth publicly and aligned himself with Jesus. Why then? When all seemed to be lost, when all seemed to be for naught, that's the enigma of Joseph of Arimathea. I want to ask you, Joseph, why now? Why risk your life now when the story's over? This man you thought to be Messiah, you hoped to be Messiah, is dead. Joseph buried the man in whom he had faith. He buried the man in whom he had hope. He not only carried Jesus' body into that tomb. He carried his faith and his hope, for they had died with Jesus. 
This is a message for weak souls, for disciples who have been secret, for disciples who are weak and faltering, for disciples who have buried faith in hope. So that means this message is for every one of us. What we should have discovered over the years is that we are all weak, all faltering, and all of us are sometimes secret. We have been in places where our faith is nil, it lies buried, our hope in despair. So this story of Joseph bearing the body of Jesus, it's a story of a dark, dark Friday evening and all day Saturday. It's for all of us. I want you to see as you look at this passage first that there's a difference between faith in what we believe God should do and faith in God. Let me say that again. There's a difference between faith in what we believe God should do and faith in God. Verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph was a man of faith. And he had not consented to their condemnation of Jesus. They thought Jesus, Sanhedrin thought Jesus had been a lying fraud. Now if Jesus had falsely claimed to be the Messiah, if it had been a lie, then they were right in their judgment. They were right in their condemnation. By Jewish law, Jesus had to be condemned as a blasphemer, a man who claimed to take God's place or to be God. Joseph had not consented, which meant that he thought Jesus was telling the truth. And that's what John said, going back to that verse that we read from John 19. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. That's an observation of a disciple that was not secret. But he knew Joseph of Arimathea, and he said he was a disciple, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. He had been a man who had faith in Jesus. He did step forth to claim the corpse. He was no longer secret. The Sanhedrin would know that it could not be kept from them. It would cost him maybe dearly. He did step forth. We have to give him that. But folks, it was not a confession of faith. He had once had faith, but he now was bearing the man he thought, had thought, was a Messiah. The only difference between Joseph and the rest of the disciples, Peter, James, John, and others, they had forsaken him. But as they were on their way out, he was on his way to make a public statement. But Joseph thought the same thing. Peter, James, and John. He thought it was over. In Luke 24, after the resurrection, we read of two disciples who were on their way home. Resurrection had happened. They were on their way home. They were living in, on Saturday. They were living thinking Jesus is dead. It's all over. There's no more of the story. Jesus, you know the story. They're on their way home, going to 
a town called Emmaus. And Jesus walks up, begins to talk to them. They're kept from recognizing. And he asks them, what, what, what's this conversation about? You're very intent. Intense. And, and they said, don't you know what's happened in Jerusalem? Don't you know about Jesus of Nazareth? And what do they say in verse 21 of chapter 24? We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. What a sad sentence. These two disciples who had given everything, who had been convinced he was inside, were now saying, it wasn't right. We weren't right. We had hoped he was the Messiah. Past tense. When he was burying, putting the body of Jesus in his tomb, if you had asked Joseph, do you still think this is the Messiah? Joseph would have said, I'm so confused. I thought he was. I was quite certain he was. But Messiahs don't die. The least I can do is bury him. Now, think about that. But what would Joseph have said to us? Now, reach forward. What would Joseph have said to us after the resurrection? After he had seen the risen Jesus. After the church began to explode through the Mediterranean area. After he, after he understood what Jesus had planned. What would he have told us then? He would have said this. I made a mistake. Our faith is not, our faith ought not to be in what we think God ought to do. Our faith must be in God himself. All of us have, and Joseph would be right. We have ideas about what God should do and what we would do if we were God. You ever said that? If I were God, I would do this. I would do that. Those ideas usually don't involve crucifixions, do they? They don't involve torture and cancer and children dying and starvation and famine and economic depressions and suicides. Joseph would have said to us, the reason I did not have faith in that moment, was I thought I knew what the Messiah was supposed to do and who the Messiah was supposed to be and what he was supposed to accomplish. I had my own ideas about what God was going to do with Jesus Christ. And that was my mistake. My faith was not in God. My faith was what I thought God should do. Folks, most of us have a faith just like that. And that's why that faith sailed fails to support us in the darkest hours of our lives. When some folks come to a crisis in their, their lives, they ask themselves, all right, what's the worst thing that can happen? I do that. A friend of mine told me one time, he said, John, whenever I'm looking at a situation and it looks like it could really go bad, I always, he said, I sit down in my room and say, what's the worst thing that can happen? The very worst thing. And I write it down, no matter what it entails, dying or whatever it is. I write it down. He said, and you know what? Anything short of that, I feel good about. That's not a bad. We live in a fallen world where bad things happen. It's, we, we live in a broken world, a world of sin and the consequences of sin. Worse things do happen. However, my friend she needed to ask one more question. 
Not just, what's the worst thing that can happen? She needed to ask, is God still in play? If the worst thing can happen, is God still in control when it does? Can God be in the midst of the worst and still rule? If you don't look at anything else, you need to look at this on your scripture sheet. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Ask yourself if you can say this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's incredible. That's incredible. Can you say that? When the worst thing a child dies? Your wife, your husband, dies. You're facing bankruptcy. Now, why was Habakkuk able to say that? Because he had faith in God. Not what, he didn't have faith in what he thought God should do. He had faith in God. Why was Habakkuk able to say that about a God? You'll understand it if you read the verses that come just before that in Habakkuk 3, 3 through 7. Look at that on your scripture sheet. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. He's looking at a transcendent God, a God that is above everything. His ways are, his thoughts are beyond our thoughts, his ways and our ways. Read on. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank, sank low. His were the everlasting ways. When Habakkuk started his book, he was questioning God. He was questioning the justice of God. By the end of his book, he has come face to face with God. And he says the plague goes before him. Pestilence does, sometimes does indicate his presence. By the end of the book, he's saying even the darkest hour, even in the darkest hour, my faith is in him. Not what? Not in what I think it should do, but in him. We have a God. Most of us have a God who must come and check with us before something terrible happens. If, if I do this thing, will you still let me be your God? Most of us don't have a God who rides on the storm and brings judgment and allows even the righteous to suffer. I remember well a wife and mother came to me and announced when her child was terribly sick, if my child dies, I'll know that God does not exist. He would never hurt me in that way. What was she saying? My faith is in what I think God ought to do, not in God. Many Christians cop out at that point. They say, God does not have anything to do with such things. 
They don't think God gets his hands dirty in the nature of this fallen world. They don't think disease and plague and famine are inside of God's plan. He could not be a God like that. That's why we need to get back to the God of the Bible. The God that is, the God that is there. Not the God we invented in our shallow, God at the tea party, Christianity. Joseph, think about it. Joseph had been there. He had seen the man he thought to be Messiah. He had seen him nailed to a cross. Had heard him scream in agony. And die an awful, awful, awful death. He needed to ask, what's the worst thing that could happen? And could the God of the Bible be in the middle of it? He needed to lose his faith in what he thought God should do and gain faith in God himself. Folks, there's a difference between faith in what we think God should do and faith in God. Secondly, I want us to see that hope in God is impossible. Do you hope in God this morning? Do you? I think some of us would say, no, John, that's really not where my hope is. Well, understand this. Speaking to both sides, whether your hope is in God or not. Hope in God is impossible when there's no resurrection and there's no supernatural. Go back to that tomb. This man went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down. Think about it. He wrapped it in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone. He was not preparing for the resurrection. He was preparing a tomb. where the body of Jesus would stay. They wrapped his body in a traditional linen cloth. John goes into great detail about this in the third, the 19th chapter. It is on your scripture sheet. Nicodemus was there with Joseph of Arimathea. He was also a secret follower. Nicodemus also, who early had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. They were spending a lot of money to take care of the body of Jesus. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices as the burial custom of the Jews. 75 pounds, tightly wrapped in linen. They honored Jesus when they took such careful care of that corpse. But when they walked out of that cave, when they walked out of that tomb, when they walked out of that sepulcher, they never expected to see him again. They were men without any hope. They were men without a resurrection. They were men that at that moment, the supernatural had just failed to exist. Death had come and it was impossible for the process to be reversed. The women were the same way. We read it this morning in Luke 24-1, you see this group of women, they had spent all the Sabbath day preparing spices to anoint his body like Nicodemus. 
and Joseph had done. And they were on their way to the tomb. Were they on the way to the tomb to see a resurrection? Let's go see if he came. Let's go see. Maybe. No. They were certain he was in the tomb and they were going to anoint a body. So many of us are the same way. We've allowed the world to come into the church and take away the resurrection, take away heaven, take away hell. We've allowed the world to come take away the supernatural nature of our faith, our hope. Oh, we can have faith in morality. The world will let us have a code of ethics. Even we can have Jesus as being an example of a code of ethics. But folks, hear me. Ethics never raised anyone from the dead. God does. Our life here always ends in darkness. Everyone has died. Sometimes death comes to the young, sometimes to the old, sometimes unexpectedly, sometimes with much sickness and pain, sometimes with little pain. But death comes, and there's a corpse to be buried. Now, folks, without the resurrection, there can be no hope. Death is the end. Without heaven, there's no hope. The world can think that way. But I tell you this morning, the church of Jesus Christ has allowed the world to come in and say to us, God, if there is a God, he didn't come in the flesh. The incarnation didn't happen. He wasn't born of a virgin. God doesn't become flesh. That's ridiculous. You really don't believe there's such. You really don't believe in heaven, do you? Jesus was just a great teacher, a good teacher. Heaven is an archaic idea whose time has passed. Joseph buried his hope when he buried Jesus because he did not believe Jesus would rise from the dead. Did he know that Jesus had said he would? Yes, he did. Even the enemies of Jesus knew that Jesus had said he would rise from the dead. Look on your scripture sheet, Matthew 27, 62. The next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priest and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, that liar said, after three days I will rise again. They were asking for a guard to be put on the tomb. Joseph knew that. He knew what Jesus said. The disciples knew. Did they believe him? No. They've allowed the, they allowed the world to come in and take away the resurrection and take away their hope. When I was in seminary, as you know, I've talked about this many times. I was in a, a very liberal seminary where they did not believe scripture as it's written. They didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God, born of a virgin. He was God in the flesh. Didn't believe any of that. Didn't believe in the miracles. Said it was nonsense. And one of my professors one day was talking to me about a message that I had preached in homiletics. And he said, John, you certainly don't believe in that nonsense, do you? In the resurrection. You don't believe in heaven. I told him that I did, in fact. Not because I needed a crutch to face death. Not as a panacea. I told him I believed it because it was a major teaching of God in Scripture and because I was absolutely convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead as a sign of our own resurrection. 
And he just shook his head. And then I asked him this question. He was a minister. And I asked him what he would say as a minister. Here's someone, here's a man who's dying. And you've gone to visit him, maybe in his home. And you know he's just, he'll, he'll die the next few hours. What are you going to say to him? And he looked at me, and without hesitation, he said, I would take his hand. And I would tell him that I was here with him. And I was here for him. And I'm going to tell you what I said. And some of you won't like it. But I said, I hope that when I'm dying, you don't come and say that to me. Because if you do, I'm going to tell you where you can go. I said, you really think you're going to be a comfort to somebody that is not your wife or husband? But so you're, you're, you're going to see this man and you take his hand and say, I'm here with you. Compare that to the words of Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. But trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I love this line. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to where I am that you may be there also. I said, and you're really, Jesus has said that to me and you're going to come and say, I'm here with you. We would be ticked. You go on vacation this summer. You spend three weeks on vacation. You come home and there's no driveway to pull into. And there's no house. And it's just gone. And you go to your neighbor, what happened, guys? Oh, I don't know. But you don't have a house. I mean, you don't have a place to park your car. You don't have a place to sleep. You don't have a place to put your clothes. You don't have a place to cook. You have nothing. You would turn the county, you would turn the world upside down until you found out who took your house. We have come home, or we have a home in heaven. And the world has come to us and said, you can have your faith. As long as it's about earth, as long as it's about a code of ethics, just as long as you don't mention heaven, just as long as you don't mention the supernatural, just as long as you don't mention the incarnation of the resurrection. Folks, hope in God is impossible when there's no resurrection and there's no supernatural. There's a difference between faith and what we think God should do and faith in God. Hope in God is impossible when there's no resurrection. Are supernatural. And finally, and this is so good, thirdly, a confession of love is sufficient when Jesus is the object of that love. I'm going to read it again one last time. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb, cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. I come down to the question we asked in the beginning. All right, Joseph, why? Why now? Why did you do it when the story was over? Why didn't you do it when you had faith that he was Messiah? Why are you coming publicly now 
I know what Jesus, I know what Joseph would have said. Because he said it. He said it with his actions. He said it with a wonderful, bold, kind, tender act. I did it because I loved him. I'm burying him and going public because I still love him. I had not loved him like that before he died, but it's time to love him like that. This was not an act of faith, people. It was an act of love. This may not have been a confession of faith, but it was confession of love. Joseph buried his faith and hope that day. He didn't bury his love. The faith was not there. The hope was not there, but the love was. And that's all he needed when that love was for Jesus. Now listen, if you hadn't listened to anything yet, wake up and listen to this because we're almost done. You see, the resurrection of Jesus did not depend on Joseph's faith and hope. The resurrection of Jesus did not depend on the disciples' faith and hope. Our faith will never raise Jesus from the dead. He came out of that grave because he was Jesus, because he was the Son of God, because the Father raised him from the dead, because this had been the plan from eternity. There are two messages I want to leave with you. If it gets so dark, so intolerable, that faith and hope are buried, Go look at Jesus in the Gospels and love him. Secondly, when you bury your faith and hope, know this, it really doesn't matter as far as the future is concerned because the resurrection in heaven will happen anyway. And they will happen because he's God and he's promised it. It's by covenant. But... If you can manage, if you can manage not to bury your faith and hope in those darkest hours, it will make a difference how you live through those times. It really will. As Joseph wrapped that corpse, what if we had been there? When he was wrapping that corpse and undoubtedly there were tears of sadness from Nicodemus and Joseph. What if we had whispered into Joseph's ear, Hey, Joseph, dry your tears. We know the whole story. We're from another time. Joseph, he's not going to stay in this tomb long. Before the new week begins, he'll be alive and you'll see him, Joseph. Joseph would have probably still wrapped that body with care because he loved him. But when he looked at you and realized, you know what, this person knows something I don't know. If you look closely, you would have seen a slight smile had replaced the grim face of despair. You see, if Joseph had not buried his faith and hope, it would have made a difference in how he walked away from that tomb and how he spent Saturday. Faith and hope 
They bring incredible power that takes away the oppression of the darkness. Our hymn is a confession of our faith for all the saints who from their labors rest. But before we, before we sing that awesome hymn, in faith, let's stand together and declare our faith. <clears throat>